Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March the 26th, 2022. Um, as always, I'm talking to you from the west coast of the United States. I want to take the long view today rather than focusing on late March 2022. We're going to be thinking about the broad view, certainly the next 50 years. We've been trying to think ancestrally on this show for a while. I had the British philosopher uh, Roman Krasnarich on the show uh, last month talking about how to be a good ancestor. Um, he has a radical prescription for long-term thinking. I think uh, Krasnarich in his book is, is very important. And earlier this week, um, I did a conversation with John Markov, the tech, the, the former tech uh, writer for the New York Times, has an interesting new biography of Stuart Brand, a West Coast visionary, the founder of Whole Earth, a, a book about the many lives of Stuart Brand. He's a controversial character, not the easiest of men. Uh, but perhaps one thing that ties everything together with Brand is his commitment to long-term thinking. You may not agree on everything he thinks about long, the long term, but he is definitely a long-term thinker. He's the man behind the Long Now Foundation. My guest today on the show, I'm thrilled, is Tony Hiss. He's the author of Rescuing the planet. Um, it's not a new book. It was out last year, but it's out uh, this month in paperback. Um, and like Krasnarich and, uh, and Brand, Tony Hiss is a long-term thinker. The subtitle of uh, Rescuing the Planet is Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. Uh, and I'm thrilled that uh, Tony is joining us from his apartment um, in Lower Manhattan. Tony, you think like an ancestor, don't you? I wonder how and why you do that. You know, Andrew, I think um, we're all being invited to think in these larger terms these days. Um, people are, have been forced to think much more uh, keenly about the climate crisis in the last year with all the droughts and floods and hurricanes. But the other side of that same crisis is what we're doing to the animals and plants. Uh, something like a million species of animals and plants are now at risk of extinction, many within the next few decades. And in order to think uh, usefully about what to do about that situation, we're sort of being uh, urged into a different context to think at a larger scale about a much longer here, longer now and a larger here. And what I've found is that people it's just happening all over, all over the place. I had a chance when I was working on this book to travel all around the continent of North America, found astounding people doing amazing things to protect the species, uh, many of whom not at all uh, understanding each other or knowing about each other, but all doing tip-top stuff. And that this goes back, that was a revelation to me that this way of thinking uh, didn't just begin now. Uh, one date that's important is August of 1900, uh, when 
a young college graduate named Benton Mackay uh, decided to celebrate his degree by taking his best friend up into the Green Mountains. They clambered up Stratton Mountain. There were no trails back in those days. They got to the top. They shinnied up the tallest trees they could find. And while swaying from that treetops, as Mackay remembered many, many years later, he was overcome by what he called a planetary feeling that somehow there was a single place along the whole ridge of the Appalachian Mountains that extended from Maine to the north of him and all the way down to Georgia to the south of him. He had sort of discovered, I know you're very keen on the concept of the biosphere. Stuart Brand also was very much interested in this idea of a single snapshot of the world. That's what you're really talking about in your book, Rescuing the Planet, isn't it? It is. And Mackay, it took him 20 years to think of a formula for his uh, planetary feeling, but then he wrote an essay suggesting a trail along the ridge tops of the Appalachians, and that became the Appalachian Trail. It caught so many people's imagination that thousands of volunteers brought it into being within the next 12 years. And then people started thinking at that scale uh, all over the place. Tony, let's stand back for a moment, because not everyone will be familiar with your work or the book Rescuing the Planet. The subtitle, as I said, is Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth. What does that mean? Well, again, that's thinking at this largest possible scale. The idea that there's a lot of sound science now called the science of 50%, which suggests that if we are to keep all of these species alive, along with us, and they keeping them alive is part of keeping us alive, we need to start protecting and conserving at least 30% of the planet in some form so that they can stay healthy. Uh, that's based on a whole raft of field studies, some uh, more sensitive plants and animals seem to need up to 70% of their original habitat to stay healthy, others less so, maybe 30%, but split the difference and you come out with about 50%. Is this Half Earth uh, project that you, you write about and you're involved with, um, discovering the Half Earth, is it designed to protect species, to protect the biosphere, to protect us? All of it. Um, the idea being that it has to stay healthy for us to stay healthy. And also that uh, if we, well, Stepping back a second, we've always thought of the, one of the greatest ideas the U.S. came up with was the National Park, uh, Yellowstone National Park. 150 years ago, the first of, of the national parks in the world. Wonderful idea. Um, since then, we've protected something like 15% of the continent and the world, but it took 150 years to get that far. Now, suddenly, we're being told that to keep going, we need to double that percentage and we have about 10 years to do it. And that from that has come the slogan 30 by 30. And it looks as though uh, later this year, 197 countries are gonna gather in Kunming, China and ratify this as a global goal. Well, that's a huge leap and something very different. But beyond that, um, if we do get to that 30% protection, that's going to be uh, within the context 
of the rest of the world. And the rest of the world has to stay in a good, naturally healthy state to keep that 30% going. So in fact, there's something for everyone to do wherever they are, and every acre counts. So it means beginning to think about what sometimes I call all species design, meaning when we intervene in a place, can we do so in a way that doesn't harm the rest of the things that are there? You talk about the American tradition. We did a show, I'm sure you're familiar with the the, 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 the writing of David Gessner. Uh, he did a, a, a trip like you, but with a focus on Teddy Roosevelt, leave it as it is. Do we need to go back to political figures, uh, environmentalists, I guess, like Teddy Roosevelt for the American tradition? Or where do we find that tradition? Tony? Well, we find it, yes, in places, in people like Teddy Roosevelt, whom most of us have heard about, but we also find it in people few of us have heard about. That's one of the revelations that I found so interesting in, in beginning to try and dig into this. There was, for instance, the most famous landscape architect of his day back in the World War I era, um, whose practice dried up because of the war. Suddenly beer barons didn't want a state's landscape. So he put his whole staff to work coming up with what he called a national plan for the future of the US. And it urged, this was in 1918, protecting at least 30% of the country. Then there were early ecologists like Victor Shelford who talked about trying to protect at least some part of every ecosystem in the country. So there's a much longer tradition than we realize. And that's one of the things that makes me so optimistic that we can get in front of this whole situation. And we do have a chance uh, to stave off a mass extinction of the sort that killed off the dinosaurs 66 million years ago. Uh, T Tony, we've done a lot of thinking and work on, on in this show on the role and the tradition of indigenous peoples of North America. Did a show with Margaret Jacobs about giving the land back to the indigenous peoples of uh, Mon uh, of, 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 of Kentucky. Uh, we also did a show with the NYU historian, sociologist David Stasevage about the traditions of democracy in which he roots it back to the indigenous peoples. I know you talk about this in your book as well. The idea that we need to learn from the indigenous peoples of North America in terms of conserving and loving the land. How important is that in terms of rescuing our planet? Hugely important and also extraordinarily well underway. I had a chance to go way up north to the top of the continent, to the boreal forest in Canada and Alaska. And that's a landscape that is so immense, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. It's something like 3,700 miles long, 1,000 miles from top to bottom. It's probably the most intact wild landscape left on the planet. And although the Canadians um, have, like the US, a bad history of the way they treated their own uh, native peoples. The to put it mildly, I think we could choose other words rather than bad, Tony. Well, all right, terrible. But but they did have, they did do one thing which we didn't do, and that was they didn't kick the people off the land the way we did. So those indigenous First Nations are still in place all over the boreal forest, and suddenly realizing 
the urgency of the situation, the Canadian government has turned to them and said, we want you to be the leaders of an entire second national park system for Canada, which we'll call Indigenous Protected Areas. We want you to be the leaders of this movement. We want you to be the rangers of these new parks, um, to be the mucklucks and moccasins on the ground, so to speak. And in an amazingly short time, this second system is coming into being there. I got up to chance to go up to Great Bear Lake, which is this enormous lake, part of which is above the Arctic Circle. Still, the water is still so clear that you can look down 50 or 60 feet and see what look like logs on the bottom, but they're not logs. They're these giant freshwater fish that have survived up there. That lake is going to be surrounded by an indigenous protected area very shortly of 22 million acres. Well, that's 10 times the size of Yellowstone. So we're, thanks to the indigenous people up there, we're, be, we're being able to think at the scale necessary. So yes, they're hugely important and they've been there for 10,000 years, 20,000 years, and they know exactly that landscape and what it needs uh, and how to take care of it. So we're very- Tony, I, I wonder if- we, we as Americans, North Americans, need to rethink our history. I did a, a wonderful show earlier this year with historian Bathsheba Demuth. Um, she has a remarkable book. I'm not sure if you've seen it, Floating Coast, an Environmental History of the Bering Strait. I'm going to put it on my list. Yeah, I think you'd actually find it really interesting. And I think she, I'm sure she's familiar with your work. Um, it requires us, I think, in the work of of, of younger historians like DeMuth, it requires us to rethink the whole idea of settling this continent, which of course is so central to the mythology of the United States. Does it? Do we need to, to rethink that or is that not really necessary? Well, our settling of the continent led to the unsettled situation we're in today. Um, we do need the, the help of all the people who are thinking at the right scale. And fortunately, we still have uh, our own Native American population, although they don't have the same uh, holdings on the land that they did, that they do up in Canada. Um, we also began to touch on the question of the biosphere. It, when we talk about the planet these days, Andrew, it, it isn't the planet so much as in terms of its surface, it's, well, there was another extraordinary guy, a Ukrainian biochemist and geochemist named Vladimir Ivanovich Vernatsky uh, in the early 20th century. He's revered, interestingly enough, both in Ukraine and in Russia. Uh, in fact, the Ukrainian National Library in Kyiv is called the Vernatsky National Library. And he wrote the first sort of biography of the biosphere in which he pointed out that yes, it's this ancient place, um, 3.8 billion years old. Yes, it's this enormous place stretching all the way around the world. But it also has this third dimension or almost lack of third dimension, it's thinness. It's innately vulnerable in that almost all species live in a layer, a vertical layer between the top of Mount Everest and the bottom of the yeah, people watching this, they can see the image of the biosphere from Wikipedia. So 
As you say, it's it's remarkably vulnerable and it underlines the vulnerability both of us as a species, I guess, and certainly of the planet. And everything as a species, because that's only 12 and a half miles from top to bottom. And as someone said, if that was laid out flat, you could drive across it in 20 minutes. I mean, where, what was 12 and a half miles away from your apartment in Lower Manhattan? You can't even get up to the Bronx, can you? No, it's still Manhattan. So... Um, we sort of hide this self from ourselves by thinking of vertical dimensions, distances in feet rather than miles. We say, oh, it's 29,000 feet to the top of Everest. That sounds like a big distance, but it's only five and a half miles. So um, we're coming to terms with so many things now. And one of those is this innate thinness vulnerability of the biosphere itself. I mean, we call it a sphere, but it's not a sphere. It's this layer of life. It's like a belt almost. I'm sorry? It's like a belt, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And as with all belts, it can break, and it seems to be breaking. Exactly. Tony Hiss is one of the people who is reminding us of its vulnerability. His, uh, his book, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth, came out last year, and it's just out in paperback. As always with all his books, it's enormously acclaimed and a really important book. I'm thrilled that he's talking to us today from New York. Tony, we're going to take a short break, 60 second break. And then I want to come back and talk about the politics of rescuing the planet, what exactly we need to do, uh, and how many of our viewers and watchers can actually help rescue the planet. So we'll be back with Tony Hiss, the author of Rescuing the Planet in 60 seconds. Don't leave us anyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Tony Hiss, the author of Rescuing the Planet, very important book just out in paperback about uh, protecting half the land to heal the earth. Uh, Tony, um, uh, uh, a 
few months ago, actually, it was a couple of months ago, I had a young writer, Gal Beckerman, on the show, The Quiet Before, on the unexpected origins of radical ideas. And when I was reading your book, I thought of Beckerman's work, because it seems as if a lot of the pieces of this long-term thinking are, are, are coming into being. Um, stuff about, for example, the, the trails, the the movements, the organizations which are necessary. Is that fair? Um, is there a, 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 an architectural shift in our thinking when it comes to saving the world that you've seen? I, I think it is fair um, and well put. I think we're sort of beginning to make more use of a different part of our mind that does respond to much larger concerns and that does see uh, a larger here and a longer now. Uh, and that's built into all of us. Um, it's part of our perceptive apparatus, but it doesn't get stressed in formal education. I sometimes think of it as sort of the Cinderella uh, capacity of the brain. We're told in school that there's two ways of thinking. There's daydreaming, which is bad, and there's concentrated uh, intellectual thought um, focusing on uh, something in front of us. And that, that takes a lot of training. In fact, years and years to get good at. But we also have this other way of thinking that just responds and we're all, we all know about it. Whenever you're in a new place, you respond on all cylinders, all senses at once in order to find out where you are and what's going on. Um, it feels like waking up while you're already awake. But it's a political dimension too. I mean, re reading your book and doing some research, you know, you've got a lot of stuff that you're involved with, Indigenous Leadership Initiative, uh, the Yellowstone to Yukon uh, Conservative, uh, Conservation uh, Initiative, um, uh, stuff on animal tracking. It all seems to be coming together, or at least you bring it together in your book about the necessary components for us to politically and scientifically organizing this rescuing of the planet? Well, it is coinciding, and I think probably not uh, accidentally, with all kinds of other uh, rethinking. We certainly realize that uh, we've neglected far too many groups uh, in our own society. We're trying to create a much more just and equitable society. We need everyone's thinking together in order to make progress. And, and by the same token, we need everyone's thinking in order to really feel our way through how we can live uh, in harmony uh, with the rest of the rest of life and how we can all collectively keep life alive. And of course, that's partly because uh, suddenly it real, we're realizing that one part of solving the climate problem is the, the life that's here. That forests uh, not only store enormous amounts of carbon, keeping it out of the atmosphere, but actually keep the planet, which came out just last week, uh, one degree cooler by their uh, evaporation, transpiration of, of moisture off their leaves. So it's so intertwined uh, that it, it requires everyone's thinking. And, and, and it all comes together in 
this issue of how to define or redefine what public space is. I know you're yes. you write about the project for public spaces in some of your work. You you'll also be very familiar. Many of our viewers and listeners will be familiar with your 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 best-selling book, The Experience of Place, a new way of looking at and dealing with our radically changing cities and countryside. I, you're also a contributor to Green Metropolis, the extraordinary landscapes of New York City as nature, history, and design. Does all this, Tony, require us to rethink the city and our way of living in the urban world? If we are indeed to protect half the land to heal the earth, then we need to rethink how we live in the city. Is that fair? Absolutely. Um, and part of living in the city is to realize that uh, despite all the expanses of macadam and concrete uh, we've put on the ground, um, uh, life continues. Um, life of other species. There, in fact, there is no such thing as a vacant lot. It's got life in it. Uh, that was pointed out to me on my travels by a wonderful young ecologist at the New School here in New York. Look at your feet, he said. Well, between the cracks in the sidewalk, tiny plants are growing. You can't stop them. It's called the ruderal plants, the plants that are found in ruins. Uh, it's all over the place. So we, we're good at pretending in cities that uh, nature is way off there. But it isn't just way off there. It's right here. Should and we be, uh, Tony, should we be more aggressively embracing the idea of urban agriculture. I know it. there's sure. some controversy amongst environmentalists. Some people believe that there's a kind of cult of the soil and that the city is not the place to do urban agri to do agriculture. But there are huge advances in technology, which means that a lot of our food can actually be grown now in factory-style agricultural units within the cities. Is this another piece of rescuing the planet? Yes. <laughs> There are so many pieces and they're all good. And they're, and so many people are working uh, so hard on all of these different aspects. That's what gives me hope that I think we can wrap our minds around this and actually stave off the mass extinctions crisis. We are not doomed. So many people are working on this and so many people, other people can get involved. And the question I get asked most frequently is how would I get involved? Well, among bird watchers, there's this phrase, the spark bird. Uh, that's the bird that at some point in their life some, some, somehow reached out to them, made itself known, and then they couldn't look away for the rest of their lives and found themselves fascinated by the world of birds. But it, it doesn't have to be a bird. It can be anything you think of. It could be a, a tree, a plant, uh, some kind of animal. And if it's occurred to you, and this is something I've um, made good use of as a writer. If something occurs to me, it must have occurred to plenty of other people uh, before me. And you can reach out and find them. You just Google whatever subject you're interested in, and you'll find people working on a local aspect of uh, protecting these plants and animals. And it's yeah, it's not just a top-down thing as it was in the 20th century with figures like Teddy Roosevelt. What about the role of Farmers themselves, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Isabella Tree, who rewilded her farm in southern England. 
Can oh, Thomas participate in this too? Are you a believer in the idea of rewilding, Tony? Well, sure. Um, there seem to be sort of three R's connected with um, this whole process. And that is retain the areas that are still wild, um, then re-strengthen uh, the places that at once were wilder, and then reconnect those places that have been severed. Um, so yes, uh, there are opportunities on farms for uh, adding back hedgerows that will attract birds and, and small animals, and also um, that will protect crops uh, from insects. That, it, there's so many uh, wonderful aspects to this that go on and on and on. I found that people who thought they had no interest in this subject at, at all uh, can be captivated by it. One of the people I write about in my book was this good old boy from the panhandle of Florida, uh, M.C. Davis, who was a self-made man and started life playing poker for a living, then became a millionaire commodities trader. He was stuck in a traffic jam one day, fuming, and didn't know what to do and saw a sign on the side of the road that said, Black, black Bear Seminar. He thought anything's better than this. Pulled off and there was a high school auditorium, he said, with a couple of drunks sleeping it off and some amused, lost Canadian tourists hoping for day-old donuts. And up on the platform were two incredible women talking about the plight of Florida black bears and how they were losing their habitat. He was bowled over. Next day, he sent them a check so they could keep going for two years. They were taken aback. Why is this man suddenly giving us money? He said, well, all I want from you is a list of the 100 most important environmental books. I'm way behind the curve. Spent a year reading them, started buying up, laid out peanut farms around him, bought 51,000 acres and started to replant the habitat of the bear, the longleaf pine forest uh, down in the southern and uh, southwestern Florida and stretching all across the south. When I caught up with him, it was 13 years later. Place still looked pretty scruffy to me, but he said, we're in year 13 of a 300 year project. Stick around. Well, MC has passed on now, but he's endowed uh, the Nagosi plantation as he calls it. So it can continue planting half a million longleaf pine seedlings every year. Um, people like that are getting Right. This is an example of, of, of thinking in the long term. If, if there's one organization, Tony, that people intrigued by all this get involved, which is it the Discover Half Earth, the Half Earth Project? Is that the one that you might suggest? Well, Ed Wilson was a wonderful proponent of this. And in fact, that phrase Half Earth was something I came up with when I was in conversation with him one day. Yes, they're a marvelous group of people. There's a, another group. Uh, inspired by the um, um, the Wild Foundation, inspired by the Canadian equivalent of Benton Mackay, this uh, Canadian activist Harvey Locke, who the Yellowstone to Yukon Y to Y initiative was his uh, great idea. They talk about nature needs half. Well, it's it's the same conversation, just mm. using slightly different words. What about thinking ancestrally, Tony? You've You've made a career out of doing it, not just about nature. You wrote a best-selling book, The View from Alga's Window, about your father. Should we be not just thinking ancestrally about the environment, but also about ourselves? 
I think we can think of ourselves as part of a continuum. That was something my father, you know, was lucky enough to be the secretary general of the organizing UN conference. So he always tried to think in, in large terms. And when he got out of college, his great opportunity was he was invited to be a law clerk for Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., the marvelous Supreme Court justice. And Holmes would talk about how as a little boy, he could talk to his grandmother who, when she was a little girl, had by herself looked out the window one day and seen the Redcoats marching up Beacon Hill at the beginning of the American Revolution. So here was just in a couple of lifespans, this continuum of American history, which my dad called the long span. I think we all can reach back that way, but at, at the same token, reach forward uh, through the generations. The next 50 years are going to be incredibly important. E.O. Wilson called it the bottleneck. Can we uh, come up with solutions as population begins to reach its peak that will keep all of these things going? Um, so it, it's a very exciting time to live. Uh, and as I say, I'm very hopeful and very optimistic that we will prove to be uh, ready to take on this challenge and, and surmount it. I, I well, I think your, 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 the book that's just out in paperback, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth, which I said has been acclaimed, um, it's now available in paperback. It's a must read if you want to think well about the world and think optimistically, but also realize there's a huge amount of work to do. But also uh, how to get involved. And how to get involved. So it's, it's an essential read. Uh, Tony Hiss, congratulations on the book, on the paperback edition. Um, what else, Tony, should people be reading? in late March, 2022. Any other book suggestions? Well, you know, that's part of the good news here is that there are so many good writers. Yeah. On this subject. Um, Elizabeth Colbert. Uh, yes. Enric Sala, Michelle Nyhaus, um, um, Nathaniel Rich, um, Carl Safina. I try to keep up. Yeah, with we've had Safina on the show, and and I, and I think Demuth is also very good. Wonderful, um, and then just sort of for fun, I still try to read thrillers and, and science fiction. You do. Uh, What's your favorite thriller these days? Anything really mm -hmm. thrilling? Well, I like some of the older stuff, like Donald Westlake, and and I like some of the older science fiction writers, like Phil Dick and Alfred Bester. And there's a wonderful Phil Dick story called. Paycheck, um, which seems to me to epitomize our situation. This guy is told he's going to be part of a secret project. And to do that, they'll have to erase his memory while he's on that project. But then when he comes back, he'll be given a huge fortune. Well, he comes back, he doesn't remember anything. But instead of a huge fortune, he's just given a little envelope full of trinkets. And he thinks, what the heck is going on here? Well, it turns out that these trinkets are the clues to help him recover his memory and his understanding of what the world's all about. And each one comes in handy just when he thinks it's time to give up. So I reread that story every year. Uh, yeah, and another version of that story, I think, is your book, Rescuing the Planet, Protecting Half the Land to Heal the Earth, which is about our legacy, our ancestral responsibility. Again, Tony Hiss, congratulations on the paperback edition of the book. And finally, Tony, uh, 
late March 2022. Who's running the world these days, Tony Hiss? Who's well, in charge? I think I have to fall back on what Ed Wilson said. It's the little things that run the world, the tiny organisms that we can't see that keep everything going in the soil are converting rock into living matter that in the ocean are the algae providing us with almost half if not more of the oxygen we breathe every day um, we rely on these little critters um, many of whom are invisible to our eyes uh, to keep things going and thank goodness they're there uh, they seem to if we can get on their side uh, then we have a chance to all work together.